Well, I can tell you as somebody who definitely has done the research on this that 4 3rd pi to 642e definitely means bad guy dies. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Skiffy and Fanty Show, Reading Rangers. Life is but a dream. <laughs> I'm Sean. I'm Trish. And on today's show, we'll discuss Samuel R. Delaney's Captives of the Flame from 1963, originally published as part of an ace double, F-199, by the way, in case you didn't know, alongside uh, The Psionic Menace by Keith Woodcott, which was a, a pseudonym for John, John Brunner. A later version of this was re-released and rewritten as Out of the Dead City, and as Trish reminded me off podcast, this is apparently removing of some of the references that tied it to the Jewels of Aptor, which originally they were kind of part of the same universe, So, uh, but we probably won't get into that. Right. Before we get into the book itself, a friendly reminder that we want to hear from you. Share your comments with us about this and past episodes at skiffyandfanty.com slash listener suggestions. We want to put together a listener mailbag episode with your thoughts, questions, topic suggestions, and more. So get those thoughts in. Or else. <laughs> three to six, three to six, <laughs> nine to twenty-seven, nine to twenty-seven. Five to the E. Five to the E, five to the E, four thirds to nine, four, three, E squared, cubed. We're becoming math creatures, Trish. <laughs> this will make sense in in uh, in due time, in case you've not read this book, because we'll probably address this. Or maybe it won't make sense, but we'll get to it. <laughs> okay, look, it's not going to make any sense, but it will get, to, yeah, you're right, we'll get to it. <laughs> so... Alrighty, so now we're on to the main event, and uh, Trisha's volunteered herself to explain what this book is about. You know, in brief, we'll get into some of the more uh, <laughs> abstract and unusual parts of this book um, a little bit later, more particular. So Trish, what, what is this book about? Parts of it are about a war that is brewing. Part of it is about an escaped captive or escaped prisoner who goes to the bedroom of a prince who used to be his schoolmate steals his clothes and is planning to go to a party. Meanwhile, um, an immigrant kid is roped into a scheme to help kidnap the prince's younger brother. Um, things happen, and the prince's younger brother gets sent to a jungle hideaway where he learns stuff. Meanwhile, the war continues to brew... The escaped prisoner's sister, mathematician, figures some stuff out, and then things start to get really weird, and reality keeps shifting. That's <laughs> you about know, it. Honest, yeah, I, trying, I realize me giving you the task of trying to summarize this book is... Uh... <laughs> That's actually a monumental task because in your summary, you're like, let me get to the very basic plot points. And I'm like, yeah, that doesn't help Because <laughs> <at laughs> as you're describing it, like the very first thing, because so John Koshar is like our main character who is the the uh, prisoner who escapes. Mm -hmm. But like just saying that he escapes and goes to like the prince's room and steals his clothes <laughs> and goes to a party sort of also is like 
but yeah, there's a there there's also the fact that he's like can go invisible kind of and like also is in contact with like some alien intelligence of some kind mm-hmm. in like some sort of cosmic realm. Uh there's all kinds of weird stuff going on. Like all of the things you're describing are like these are what the plot points would be if we just took out all of the the like bizarre stuff that Delaney puts in because once you put them in like almost none of that makes any sense (laughs) it's hard to make any progress at all in describing the plot if I put in all the weird stuff that seems irrelevant until you get to later in the book yeah and I think that's an interesting point because this is a book that I found really interesting for kind of subverting my genre expectations multiple times (laughs) because if you take out all of what it makes this a, a clearly science fiction work, it reads like a fantasy, like a, yes. an adventure fantasy story. A feudal fantasy. Mm-hmm. Precisely. Yeah, there, there's, you know, lords and ladies and there's you know, princes and all of this stuff. There's all this sort of kingdom work. But then you also have the economics stuff with the uh, fish farming and uh, surplus labor and... I really enjoyed the mixtures in this book where you go from the feudal adventure, which was pretty engaging in itself, sure, to the digressions on uh, on uh, fish economics <laughs> and the madness of bureaucracy when they're trying to get out alerts about the food supply being poisoned. Um, there, there were just all kinds of interesting elements just in the what started out as the main plot and when it when it gets weird and you start shifting realities i thought that was fascinating too um trying to figure out what was going on but also just some neat ideas he was playing with yeah and i think that's that's sort of like if you think of if delaney has a thing that's like his thing because so many of his books have these moments where entire sections are about something else you know that's in important in the world but he's exploring some idea that's not necessarily integral to whatever the main plot is uh almost all of his works does his empire star does it um Dahlgren and nova definitely do it a number of his shorter works do it this book does it uh in a lot of ways it's it's very much a, a delaney novel it's it's kind of what you anticipate from one of his shorter works because he does have these moments where it's like okay well you know, we, we've set up that there's some weirdness going on, but now let's take a digression and have like a conversation about immigration, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so like with all of the little street urchin characters who, you know, keep going around and like, welcome to the, the Island of Opportunity and like all of this stuff, you know, it's all part of this big charade that's being put on, but we get these, these beautiful descriptions of like what this world is actually like and just how com- complex the economics really are. Despite the fact that in a lot of ways, his least compelling characters in terms of how they're written are actually the people in power. You know, Uska or Uske, I'm not sure how you pronounce his name. The prince is frankly kind of very one note. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's sort of kind of a spineless, very, very spoiled brat child of a man who really doesn't take much real responsibility for himself or really has much agency in and of itself. I mean, even at the end, right, he is manipulated by John pretending to be in his sort of in his dreams again. Yes. Uh, doing essentially an inception on him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what he's doing. <laughs> 
So where by comparison, Let, his younger brother, is actually quite intelligent, but Let's not not one of the people in charge. He's basically nobody, right? Is and effectively he probably will never be in power so long as his brother remains in power. And yet we see the very first time when Alter comes to him at night during this kidnapping plot. He's so clever to make sure that he gets pictures of her for his him's mother. Uh, and it's all very cleverly done. So mm-hmm. it's an interesting thing that a lot of his clever characters are actually the people who don't have power. And a lot of the non-clever characters, the very one-note characters, are those with power. And so like even like John's father is another example. Very one-note character. He's just a big power-hungry man mm-hmm. who is like the fish king of the island. Yeah, I, I did think it was interesting that even the one note characters they had hints that you know if we had spent a little more time with them they could have been interesting um you know the pouty king usky uh who was a boy king you know i i did wonder what was going to happen if he figured out that this really was the guy who he basically pulled into a prank that got him sentenced to prison and uh let was passive you know, he went along with his kidnappers without raising a fuss, although he did cleverly get those photos, like he said. Um, but I think that's kind of how he was treated all his life, so I didn't really blame him for it. You know, that was his, he had been raised to be obedient, and, uh, you know, his aunt was giving him orders through a, through an intercom, basically. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, yes, they were very one-note characters, and yet I didn't feel like that was lack of skill. It was lack of time. Uh, Delaney had things that he wanted to talk about. You know, the pouty king was not one of them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to me, I, I see it as intentional. Mm-hmm. It's not where Delaney wants to focus. And so by by that nature, they, they have to be one-note characters. Right. I just think it's an interesting contrast that so many of the people who really don't have much power in this world... They're the ones that get the the full descriptions. And I would say that this is a thing that in some of other Delaney's other work he does do, which he focuses on people who, you know, don't have all the power, the sort of people at the bottom or in the middle. Uh, it seems to be in, in not all of his work, but in a lot of his work, that's where he wants to focus. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that is in this book, it's a good example, which is like every single decision being made at the top affects everybody down below. Right. With the worst. And so... Uh, even just like the very act of war or the like, descriptions of the economics in this world of mm-hmm. like how intricately it's tied into whether or not they have this war. Yes. It's all part of like this conversation that the book wants to be having about how these systems of power ultimately affect everyday people. Mm-hmm. And in some cases can be quite disastrous. Uh, you know, the very fact like there's all this bureaucracy to protect those in power but when it comes to protecting the people from poisoned fish, which is what we get right basically when the war starts, mm-hmm. uh, this, this all this fish that was uh, covered with a poison to, I guess, destroy it or something. I can't remember exactly. There's all these efforts to try to get the word out from like low level military members. But the, the way the bureaucracy works prevents it. Right. And so potentially hundreds and hundreds or thousands of people have either consumed this stuff or and died or at least consumed it consumed it at a time when they found out they could go to the hospital and get an antidote treatment and so it's in a lot of ways it it sort of unveils just the way that systemic systems of power aren't really there for everybody else no matter how much you want to say that they are because they aren't in this at all right because the um the order has gone out that these 
uh, communication relays are only to be used for war-related matters, missives from the generals. And right. so the, hey, our entire city is being poisoned alert, which you would think would be relevant to a population under any circumstances, but especially a population in a war, <laughs> you would think that would be important, but it's not one of the accepted inputs. And so lots of people get sick and die. Yeah. So, okay. So we should probably set up, I think, because we need to probably talk about this, which is what really is actually going on here, because we've given this kind of, you know, the, the bare bones of what the plot is, but those bones are like covered in a, a sea of flesh. <laughs> like, there's a lot. And and I'm and this is in no way blaming you, Trish. This is Bora pointing out of like I think trying to summarize this novel as a cruel act, despite the fact it's only about 140 something pages. So it is a very layered book. It is. It's very layered. So this war, if we take that as the starting point, so they don't know who they're going to war with, right? They just know that their their planes that have been sent over with this radiation barrier, there's been some sort of big disaster very long ago in the past. Right. And there are these radiation barriers that are separating the uh, kingdom of Tomalin. Toromon is Toromon, the island capital. And they the are island capital of at the war empire. Telfar, a dead city, or so they think. That's as close as they can get to saying what they're fighting because they don't know. They have no idea what they're fighting. They're All they know is their planes aren't coming back. There's all this worry and threat that war is going to happen and that war eventually gets declared. But in the meantime, we know about John Koshar, who, as you'd mentioned, was a prisoner who escaped. But he didn't just escape. He did escape, of course. He also got like sucked in with this sort of alien super entity that is trying to hunt down and stop this other entity that is being massively destructive and destroying worlds and doing all these horrible things including on the world in which in which uh, a Terramon is is located right so he gets changed so that he becomes immune to the radiation he also like in light as I'm, I'm correct in light he basically goes invisible which mm -hmm. means when he's wearing clothes, he's just like running around like the Invisible Man, which has got to be fun. Right. His molecular structure was changed to let him withstand the radiation of the dead city. And that, for some reason, also makes him invisible in strong light. Exactly. But yeah, so like this plot, right, is, is one of the big things that's going on throughout the book. In addition to there is the plot to collect Let uh, and take him to the forest people, mm -hmm. which are going to like help him become strong, basically, uh, which is what his his mother wants. Uh, the Lady Duchess Petra, as I believe. His is, aunt. His, his aunt, but excuse yes. me, who wants him to be strong, but not his mom, right? Because his mom's the one that collects, uh, captures Alter after she uh, gets sick and then she tortures her because she wants to know what happened to her son. Right. Yeah. And so there's this plot uh, which is happening and that involves a little foray into the forest people's world in which they mark people who basically are, are psychics mm -hmm. and uh, and then they just like ignore them. They don't they just pretend they don't exist and like stand perfectly still whenever they see them being marked. So there's that story. And then there is the story of the like street urchins, which is about their them trying to survive and then getting sucked into this plot and being involved in, in the war in the, its own way, more particularly with John Koshar. Like there's all of this stuff going on. It's quite a lot. Also, you got like random moments where basically Delaney goes on a math trip and is like, let me tell you about this gambling game. <laughs> <laughs> 
with these poor guys uh with uh i believe it's it's tomar uh who's married to clea or clee is he married i thought he was a boyfriend but okay I don't recall if they're actually married. They're no, they're they're not married. They're about to get married. I think is what's going on. They're they're going to get married. Yeah, I did think Clea, the mathematician sister of John Koshar, was uh, even though she's kind of a side character. I thought she had some of the clearestly portrayed emotions and thoughts um you know while she's working on her equations, which mm. everyone else thinks are must be unimportant. <laughs> she's trying to find something that can't exist right like, right <laughs> like it's like sub like sub trigonometric functions like she's trying to find like like basically the version of the imaginary number right but for other a, a math that i don't understand right it's high higher math that she, even she admits is currently not applicable to the real world, but she thinks right. maybe it will be someday. So there's that, but there's also the fact that she's so utterly delighted when uh, John Kosher calls her on a telescreen or something like that, and she finds out he's alive and he's been doing stuff. <laughs> so it, it was <laughs> pleasant to have a real relatable character there who was having a moment of joy in the book, <laughs> which doesn't happen very often. Yeah, because I think in a lot of ways, because almost every other character is tied in some way to the, the, the big mean plot, mm -hmm. and she's the one that has a sort of very clear side story that has technically doesn't really have anything to do with what's going on trying to discover these math equations but they they really don't help but then you see much later in the book that actually math can be really really important and how people communicate and so maybe it is more important than even she thinks it is i think you're right that that i think that the thing that's happening here is that clay doesn't she doesn't necessarily come to that realization yet but the book kind of does. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which, and, and this is, I think, Trish and I want to talk about this, so we're going to do it, Trish, <laughs> which is uh, towards the end. So one of the things that's happening here is as John Koshar and two other other people have been altered, essentially, mm -hmm. by these alien entity. And they're they need to work together to, like, essentially, like, use almost like a psychic power to, like, stop the one entity that's causing all the destruction and, and making it life terrible. Yes. And in getting to it, they basically, like, go through this, like, an acid trip. They're, like, being transported into other realities on other worlds and they're being other beings. Like, there's, like, one where, like, one of them's a squid monster. Like, it's just, mm -hmm. like, they're going through all this weird stuff. Right. And there's a moment in this... When they basically convert to mathematics, mm -hmm. and I think they're inside a sun. They're basically like elements inside a sun, or something to that effect. And so everything that's happening is like these numbers: three to six, three to six, nine to twenty-seven, nine to twenty-seven. The numbers get kind of wild and out of control as they're trying to fight this entity, this being that is causing all the trouble. And it is supremely weird. The whole sequence is absolutely banana pants. Yes, but it's fun. I mean, they're using these math these equations uh, or expressions to communicate with each other and kind of resonate their thoughts with each other and focus right. on the things they want to accomplish. And, you know, I, I think the equations themselves are nonsense, but it's uh, written so with such conviction. <laughs> 
Are you sure they're nonsense? Have you tried to do the math? I have not. It has been a long time since I had differential equations in grad school. A very long time. Well, I can tell you as somebody who definitely has done the research on this that 4 3rd pi to 642e definitely means bad guy dies. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for figuring that out, Sean. <laughs> You're welcome. I just really, I found the whole sequence of them jumping back and forth. A lot of it is nonsense, <laughs> but also... His descriptions are shockingly beautiful uh, yeah. at times. I also want to note that this is the when we get that repetition of those lines that the open of, opening of the book has, right? The green of beetle's wings, the red of polished carbuncle, a web of silver fire, and through the drifting blue smoke, John hurled across the sky, which is such a cool set of lines. And we see most of those repeat a few times throughout the book, but especially at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And so when they get to this weird situation, you have some pretty stellar descriptions of just basically alien environments. There's a, a moment when they're siphoning liquid methane and he's describing this as this like this stunning beauty as they're being transported into these other creatures you know the one of them has eye stalks but he describes them as this beautiful stunning thing mm -hmm. not as an alienating thing which i think is interesting because a lot of science fiction when you have your body taken from you and you get put into something else it's meant to be a scary process this isn't it's just is right well i think it helps a lot that even though their physical expressions or even their mathematical constructions are alien to us, these are named characters that we have already come to know in their True. human forms. And so, you know, when when you read, John, now John flapped his slitherers down and began to glide away, you don't think, ooh, squirmy thing. <laughs> you think, right. okay, John, what are you up to now? <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. It's a really stunning set of pages. I really appreciated that this is where this book went because I, I gotta be honest, it's been a while since I've read a science fiction book where I got to the end and I was like, oh my God, that was some weird shit. <laughs> because a lot of science fiction that I've been reading has been, you know, it's been very plot forward and not to suggest that this doesn't have a plot, but I think that Delaney's interest in the plot is really just as a vehicle for all the other expressions that he wants to make. Mm -hmm. He's not really interested in, I'm telling a story in any kind of traditional sense, but I think a lot of science fiction today, you know, is very plot forward and tends to feel more grounded mm -hmm. than that. This feels like, honestly, if you were reading this and you were high, you would have a religious experience <laughs> because I, I cannot imagine reading the end of this and having a normal reaction. Like, and this, this is 1963, right? So the people reading this, you know, to be fair, there's a lot of weird stuff back then, but you got to imagine like some kid like in a bookstore just saw this like weird thing with its squid monster and planets on the front and was like, I'm going to read that and has just an absolute like mind blowing experience because that's in a lot of ways what the end of this book feels like to me mm -hmm. is it's it's a mind blowing experience. And I so much appreciated that and want more science fiction to just get freaking weird. Do it. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> yeah, I like it. I just really enjoyed it. Yeah, I did too. I definitely did. Um, yeah, with with the beautiful language, you know, you don't know what's coming next. Um, whether whether you're water creatures or crystalline singing entities <laughs> 
or sexy moss or <laughs> yeah the sexy moss oh my god <laughs> he, his descriptions are stunning yeah. yeah yeah i mean he he says it a lot but sexy moss is a very very simplified <laughs> uh, he says it beautifully <laughs> very simplified but gosh they really do become sexy moss wow it's interesting so like a lot of this book i think is I think part of the reason this book has not been discussed really all that much anymore by comparison to some of his other work is it's it does feel like it's early in his career. I mean, mm-hmm. It literally is, but it feels early in his career. And so it has it has aspects to it where it's like it's a lot of ideas, but it doesn't mean that the whole is necessarily totally cohesive yet. I think that's that's kind of him. He's kind of exploring things here, but he hasn't quite like figured out the Delaney formula yet. Well, um, for me, it's been a terrific introduction to Delaney. Uh, I had never read a- anything before we decided on this project, uh, re- read anything by him, um, partly because I know a couple of my relatives have tried Dahlgren a couple of times and bounced off hard. Yeah. And so I just didn't try because there's so much else to read. But this one, because it starts off with the reasonably you know, standard post-apocalyptic feudal civilization and then proceeds on with it, you know, it's really approachable. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, it gets weird toward the end, um, but it's very easy to dive into this book and just start reading without any prep. It, it, I'm sure it's not as deep and as great as Dahlgren is, but it certainly was easy, you know, as a starter to approaching Delaney. Um, And it makes me want to read more Delaney. And so that's great. Anybody is here and you're thinking, gosh, where do I start with a Delaney? You could start with Captives of the Flame. I think this is a book that's pretty, I think you're right, Trish, it's approachable. Uh, And it is a book that, you know, even from the start, you know, there are moments where you're like, well, that's kind of weird. Uh, They can explain that. It's like, well, they will. They'll explain what's weird about whatever that thing is. Mm -hmm. But it's not so alienating from the start. In fact, in a lot of ways, it's very familiar. Yes. Which I think is interesting. It's sort of something I was saying at the beginning, which is that this book, if you just take away the sci-fi trappings, it's just a fantasy. And it has a lot of the very familiar trappings of fantasy. And I, that's part of like its trick, which is that it has these components, but that the bigger story that's sort of layered on top of it is not at all like that. Uh, and so when we get to that, it is it is like this sudden, like the world has been opened up to you. Uh, because in a lot of ways, I think you can kind of like approach this of like, we're all Uske, you know, less spoiled, but in the <laughs> sense of like, we have a, we have a specific way of like, we're looking at the world in one way. And we, and we, as we approach this book from the start, we're kind of like Uske, which is like, oh, everything makes sense. You know, it's all kind of like, oh, the fish, like you got to make sure to sell your fish and all that stuff. Great. And then you get to some of the weird stuff and then it's sort of like, okay, well, uh, apparently, uh, we're all now John Koshar, because we're just like becoming squid people at the end of this. It's like, (laughs) what is happening to us? Yeah, I don't think you can really just take away the science fiction trappings and leave it as fantasy, because then the ending really breaks down and there's no no real conclusion to it without the science fictional layers at the end. I think what I I was just trying to get at was that that from a plot perspective, that it feels like a fantasy. But you're you're completely right that all the sci-fi elements, you know, at the beginning, they're not, they may seem superficial at the start, but when you get to the end, they're not. Right. It's not just that you start out with a feudal fantasy structure 
and shellac on a few more layers. The, right. the layers are the whole point. <laughs> right. And uh, y- y- you have to deal with them in order to get anywhere with the book at the end. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, when you read this, you know, anytime the book stops and goes to a thing past like a single sentence description, like, oh, we're going to spend a couple paragraphs on this thing, that's going to be important. Mm-hmm. You know, so the talk about like fish economics, well, that's actually important because later on the fish get poisoned and it's a big to do. Right. You know, the the dealing with the bureaucracy stuff, well, that's because all of that boils over later. The characters who are the street urchins who are just like trying to peddle nonsense on the streets, well, they become central to the, the main plot of the kid or one of the main plots of kidnapping Let and and all of that. John Koshar, who is has escaped from prison, well, that's a big deal because he's tied to Uske, uh, who got him into prison. And his sister is one of the mathematicians who helps solve the, one of the problems, you know, because she basically comes up with the idea of... Of there's a generator that is powering this this radiation barrier and if you turn it down you'll realize there's just a civilization on the other side and they're just being contr- well she doesn't know this but john knows this that they're being controlled by an entity but right yeah so like everything kind of ties together which i think is really cool because it doesn't feel like the only threads that aren't fully complete is are the threads that we know are going to be in what comes after this because there is another book Right. So like Let. Let would be an example of this, which is that we know part of his story, but his story is not complete here. Mm -hmm. But that's because that story carries over. Or at least you hope so. (laughs) Right. I haven't read the following books, but I, you know, would assume that there's going to be more about that. Yeah, there are all kinds of little threads throughout this book that uh, cross and countercross or maybe don't quite cross, like for instance, um, the two youngest boys in this story, uh, you have Let, the princeling, and you have Tell, the immigrant boy. So their names are just reversals of each other. Um, <laughs> and so I was kind of halfway expecting some kind of Prince and the Pauper situation or something, but they never actually even meet in the story. So, oh, and at the end of the book, there is a fleeting character who you think may be tells mother searching for him but they you know just cross paths on the edges and uh tell doesn't know doesn't even really doesn't certainly doesn't recognize the woman because he's doing something else focused on something else so there are all kinds of little little small touches throughout this book that make a wider you know even beyond all the layers of science fiction and everything there are a lot of storytelling fragments that yeah. make you realize there's a lot going on in this world. So I I, I I was curious here about, so clearly war is one of the big themes of this book because it's, you know, half the book is basically the lead up to war and then the other half is a combination of people going to war or trying to stop it. As a thematic, right, we've seen lots of science fiction deal with war. I was curious how you thought of what this book was doing with the concepts uh, or the theme of war itself. What 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 came to your mind when you approached this? Well, to me, the the main thing is how uh, he emphasizes that the major reason for this war is that we don't know what's on the other side, or the characters don't know what's on the other side. So it's all fear of the unknown. And of course, that's not true of all wars. Sometimes it's just a, a naked, aggressive battle for resources. But a lot of the ways that war is dressed up to make it 
pretty enough for people to be willing to to commit to it en masse is by objectifying the other side and turning them into a scary alien enemy um, by making them the unknown. So in this case, of course, it's literally the unknown because you don't know what is beyond the radiation barrier. You just know that some, something is coming. Yeah, I think you're you're pretty on the mark there. In a lot of ways, even though war is like the, the big plot thread, it, it seems like it's not the one that Delaney is as interested in as some of the other thematics. Because I, I think in a lot of ways, what you've described is something that's actually kind of simple, which is mm-hmm. like, I think the people are like just trying to like not starve to death. But like the people in power, all they know is that their planes keep being disabled. Mm-hmm. And that and that at one point people used to live there, but now there's a radiation barrier, like all of that. That's all they kind of know. So in a lot of ways, like there's actually some some degree of justification for being afraid of what's on the other side because they literally have no idea. And so it is about the unknown. Um, one thing that I think that Delaney also is interested in here, though, is is the way in which the people that make the decisions about this stuff aren't necessarily making those decisions for the benefit of anyone, not even necessarily for themselves, but I think they think they're doing it for themselves. Because one of the things that the book deals with, like you mentioned earlier, the economic stuff, because there's there's moments when this book like goes into some economic conversations, like dealing with the the difference in economics between selling foreign fish versus selling local fish and all of these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. But that all comes back later on because so much of this war is being propped is gonna prop up this economy. Um, you know, people who don't have jobs or are working in the prisons will suddenly be going into the military. You know, there's all of these components. So that to me, it seems like one of the things that he's interested in is really about the way that people in power assert that power over others by coming up with, in a large respect, excuses that don't really make a whole lot of sense. It's interesting that the end of this book has them combating this entity and which I think his name is like Tlat 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 because it's just TLT, right. I think, over and over. They they have to fight this entity because this entity is manipulating people, sort of like Ares and Wonder Woman, right? Manipulating people yes. to go to war. Mm-hmm. But what I find so fascinating is that that is happening in such a limited scope that it almost feels like the threat that the powerful people are are reacting to is really not a significant threat. It's it's unknowns, which is scary, but really it seems to me that what they're reacting to is the uh, threat to their power because if the city collapses economically, we kind of have an idea of what happens to people in power who screw things up really bad. Uh, sometimes they, they don't get to live very long. Right. Well, their, their justification for these, you know, others are hostile to us is that the planes they are sending into the territory of the other keep being disabled. But, I mean, that very act of exploration could be viewed as a hostile, invasive act by, you know, and swatting down the planes could be their gentlest way of reacting to it. Yeah. I'm certainly in favor of exploration, but uh, there, there, there is also, you know, just projecting your own self and being denied the ability to do that is not necessarily a justification for war at all. Yeah, it, it's, it's. I think in, it, this book kind of does this in a lot of different ways, which is, 
you can't just kind of assume that you understand the other person's perspective, you know? So like, I think with Let and is it Arcor, I believe, mm-hmm. who is one of the, the forest giants. Um, oh, the forest coral, I think, is the forest giant. Yeah, yeah. Arcor is the other one who's been marked, but is... Right is working with John. But one of the things like, so Let goes into that world. And when he learns that one of the things that they do when they meet a psychic is they, they basically mark them and then pretend they basically don't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. There's fear there, right? It's a, it's fear of something. Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. Yeah. Totally. An, a, a thing of like, we can't control this. They can read our thoughts and they can see into our minds. That's an invasion. Let's perspective is coming from outside the culture. And so he's initially very upset by this, understandably, because it's kind of scary. And it Mm -hmm. happens to one of his, I guess you could call friend, uh, the sort of mutated fellow. What ultimately that whole storyline kind of showed is that you can't just come into this situation and assume that you know what's going on and what the reasons are and then just immediately judge it. You need to know all that information before you can then judge it, which he does ultimately do, and in a lot of way, his forest giant companion also comes to his own realization that it wasn't fair when their their mutual friend is is marked. It is a thing with that only arises after they have both been exchanging. Well, mostly it's one direction, but exchanging mm-hmm. a degree of culture uh, and understanding. And once you reach that understanding, then that criticism seems to be validated, rather than right. the knee jerk reaction. That basically Uske and and the people in power in Toromon are basically doing, which is we're sending planes, they're shooting them down. What well, must be an attack? Yeah, I like how when it gets down to it, after the marking, Let basically just has to stare at Coral until Coral realizes it. Hey, right. I really shouldn't. We really should not be doing this to uh, to those other people. Yeah, and this is, of course, after his friend saves him by using his power right. and leading Quarrel to him. Mm-hmm. And so there's an innate unfairness in this power structure, right? Uh, which I think is actually really interesting because in a lot of ways, like the the city of Toramon or the kingdom of Toramon doesn't really uproot its power structures. And yet there's an immediate challenge among the forest people through Quarrel, mm-hmm. which is interesting to me. And I'm curious if that's going to be addressed later on, too. Yeah, just as just a reminder that maybe you don't mark people who are just different. Well, yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> it's kind of heavy handed, actually. It's yes. a little heavy handed. This is a bad thing. Yeah. Anyone with any sense should realize it is a bad thing and you should not do it. Can't we just get along? And yet we did. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say we as in humans. Humans have done this many yes, times. Yes, yes, yes. So. It's obvious to us, but sadly, lots of other people have not absorbed that lesson. No, and I mean, this is 1963, so this is sort of like right at the, the thick of the new wave movement that is sort of mm-hmm. rising in the period. So that also explains some of the weirdness. But you're also getting a lot of a lot more, I think, social analysis in work. Mm-hmm. And this is, I mean, this does a little bit of it. And Delaney's going to do it a lot more later, where he is just right. like going to really dig in, dig in his heels. I think this is a nice entry into Delaney. I don't know that this would be the book I would suggest to start with if you've never read a Delaney, but it's not a bad book. And so I think it's very interesting. I think there's a lot to poke at. And I think it's very sad mm-hmm. that almost nobody is writing about this book. Yeah, uh, it's it's on Project Gutenberg and on LibriVox. So you can read it or listen to it for free. So yeah, it's certainly available for anyone who wants to try it. Absolutely. Well, perfect, Trish. I think we've done it. I mean, 
we didn't hit in everything, but you can't really do that without just reading the whole novel. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> That's true. We don't need to do that because it's out there already. <laughs> Absolutely. Awesome. Well, great. So thanks so much, everybody, for joining us today for Reading Rangers. Uh, again, if you'd like to let us know what you thought about this episode or others, go over to skiffingfanny.com slash listener suggestions to send us your thoughts. If you'd like to suggest a different book by a by POC author, please do. We're happy to check out new and old stuff when we're kind of fiddle farting around and seeing what we discover. Also follow us on Skiffing Fanti on Twitter and Instagram and subscribe to the newsletter at skiffingfanti.com slash newsletter. And if you like the show, please support us on patreon.com slash skiffyandfanti. Please do. Every little bit helps. And leave a five-star review on iTunes, which also super helps. As for me, you can find me at Sean Duke on Twitter, seanduke.net for all my stuffs, or patreon.com slash thejoyfactory. And you can find me at P.E. Matson on Twitter, on my blog at whatsthewordnow.blogspot.com, and on the Supergirl Supercast podcast and the Stargate SG Fun podcast. All right, folks, I need to make it awkward now, so I will just note that after this, Trish, uh, I will be converting myself through mathematics into an eel monster before eventually also turning myself into a starfish, which is disembodied and is floating in the ether of space. And I will attempt to become a crystalline singing entity. I hope we both get to do that kind of thing sometime. Uh, but <laughs> in the meantime, we'll continue communicating in some form or another. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. All right, folks, on that note, awkward ending and scene. Talk to you later. If you want to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash or skiffyandfanty.com, our website, where you can get access to all of our fancy things. Our music comes from Holy Mole. You can support him and his work at patreon.com slash holy mole. Thank you for listening. <laughs>